0: Listeners, welcome to European Talks. My name is Trakina Subotic, and I will be your host for today. The goal of this episode is to cover the U.S. elections, which everybody has followed, but also we would like to touch upon the ever-complex geopolitics, but also we would like to see how Serbia fits into these changing times. In order to answer all of these topics and questions, we have invited, and it is our pleasure to introduce Mr. John Allen, Who's a retired four-star general, and he is also today a president of Brookings Institution. Mr. Allen, thank you for being with us.
1: It's A real pleasure to join you today. Thank you very much for the invitation.
0: Thank you once again for joining us. Uh, sure. I would like to start with the U.S. elections. I mean, everybody was highly anticipating in those elections, and we saw that officially Joe Biden has won them. Yet, we see Donald Trump, the outgoing president, he has continuously labeled the elections as rigged. Mm -hmm. I know that you have actually uh, written an article recently that uh, the American democracy is under direct assault by now outgoing president of the United States. Maybe can you tell us how damaging are Trump's election doubts and what kind of message does his unprecedented post-electoral behavior send to the world?
1: Well, it's several uh, issues. Uh, At the most uh, basic issue, uh, it has for a large number of Americans thrown the outcome of the election into doubt. And it's baseless. Uh, He has attempted to bring lawsuits in in, uh, a number of the states. And of course we vote at the state and local level in the United States, even in our national elections. And he's attempted to bring a number of lawsuits uh, against uh, the outcomes in several key states. We call them battleground states because it's really the area where the decisions will be made on the outcome. Okay. And in almost every case, those lawsuits have been thrown out without merit, without basis or validity. So uh, absent his ability to make the legal case that uh, the election uh, was failed as a process, uh, he continues to uh, issue baseless claims that it was rigged or, or it was falsified, et cetera. And even though the law, our courts, uh, are increasingly uh, siding against all of those kinds of claims when they appear in the form of a lawsuit, okay, uh, there is still a large number of American voters who voted for him uh, who have a concern. So the, the first point, the most basic point, is, is that a large number of Americans are deeply concerned about this election. Now, at, at a Longer a longer-term matter, as a longer-term matter, he throws uh, for the American electorate doubt upon our democratic process. Uh, and uh, it, it, at the very basic level, he yesterday fired the head of our cybersecurity branch in the Department of Homeland Security, who said this was the most secure election we've ever had. So beyond firing that individual. Uh, beyond firing our Secretary of Defense and two undersecretaries, one for policy and one for intelligence, uh, beyond uh, the the potential that he will fire the head of our CIA, we're all very deeply concerned right now that his actions run counter to our democratic traditions. Uh, And sadly, many of the voices in our legislature, our Congress that ought to be raised in opposition to this are silent. And so we're all very uh, interested in this. We're very attentive to it. Those of us that need to speak out will speak out. Uh, But it creates a crisis of confidence in this election in the minds of probably many of the over 70 million voters that went with him. It creates a a crisis of confidence just in our democratic processes. And then his actions in the firings of key officials and in his unwillingness to support a transition. To the president-elect, not just uh, creates uh, the potential that in the final moments of his administration he is obstructionist to that moment to the very end. It creates a national security crisis for the United States as well for the people of the United States and frankly the people of the world, because uh, Joe Biden's transition uh, is is in many respects being uh, uh, substantially hampered by uh, Mr. You know, Trump. I
0: was going to ask you in that regard. Will Joe Biden have enough legitimacy to rule in the next four years, considering that a large number of Republicans now doubt, actually, that the elections were actually genuine and uh, without any falsehoods?
1: Well, I think the profound difference between Joe Biden and Donald Trump was that Donald Trump uh, attempted to govern in the last four years by creating divisions within our, our population uh and in that regard created a real ca- crisis of confidence that he was the president for all americans joe biden on the other hand and i'm not a republican or a democrat i'm what what's called an independent uh joe biden on the other hand made it a very clear created a very clear message throughout the campaign and he said it since the election that he's going to be the president of all americans whether you voted for him or not he'll fight just as much for a a Republican who voted against him as a Democrat who did. And he's not going to see the uh, provinces, if you will, the states of of the United States, he's not gonna see them as aligned either as, as a Democratic province or a Republican state. He's going to see them all as the United States. So Joe Biden seeks to govern from a platform of unity. Donald Trump was the president of the United States on a platform of disunity and uh, division.
0: Yes, we can now, see that the rhetoric is really different between the two uh, candidates, but- uh, Yeah, it's what enormously can expect, different. What can we expect about Biden's policies? How different will his policies be internally in the foreign, and also when it comes to foreign policy?
1: Well, domestically, I think he's going to reach out across the country. You know, we have some very major divisions and you asked me whether uh, there will be Americans who don't believe that he is a legitimate president. That'll come from two reasons. One is the sense that the election was stolen or it was in some way uh, rigged. So that's a problem. People will have an absence of confidence there. But also, uh, Trump's constant uh, beating of the drum that Joe Biden isn't qualified to lead. Um, now, uh, Joe Biden's policies, I think, will be inclusive. Uh, he's going to work very hard, if if I understand uh, his views, and I know him. Pretty well. uh, That uh, his intent is to is to run uh, a domestic policy that is as inclusive as possible. uh, That will hope uh, ultimately to deal with the issue. And these are I'm going to give you four major areas that you might consider the pillars of his initial domestic intent. The first is to deal with the COVID crisis. You know we're going to pass a quarter million dead Americans in eight months probably within the next couple of days, and 11 to 12 million infected. That's, that is job one. And President Trump has been missing in action throughout virtually this entire crisis. So President Biden on the 20th of January is going to be dealing with this. Trump has in fact uh, actively obstructed his intent, uh, Biden's intent to work closely with the outgoing administration. So job one, get COVID under control. That works for all Americans. Job two is deal with the economic downturn, and the economic downturn fell disproportionately upon large segments of of the American population that exist in the moment-to-moment street-level economy of America. So when restaurants went out of business, when deliveries went out of business, when stores went out of business, that fell disproportionately on large numbers of Americans, to include large numbers of Americans from our black and brown communities which are already vulnerable by virtue of, of the traditions of, of my country, systemic racism. Um, so he's gonna to try to reverse with a, an initial stimulus package, the downfall of the economy as it relates to much of the American population. And that will help, by the way, many of those who voted against him as it will many of those who voted for him. So this will be an important outreach. The third area is to deal with the issues of, uh, of racism, systemic racism that we all are trying to grip right now in our country. The, the, the terrible murder of George Floyd last year sparked an outcry in this country that we have not seen since the mid-60s. And I'm old enough to remember the civil rights movement in the 60s. This surpassed it in many ways. Uh, and one of the, I think, most important ways that it surpassed it was when you looked at the people in the streets in America, okay. you saw not just the, the faces of our black population, you saw the faces of our entire population in the streets because of the recognition that we've got to fix uh, a long-standing uh, open sore in my country. And that's the issue of racism. Joe Biden is going to work actively in that regard. And if you see, first of all, the ticket, you know, he's going to we're going to have the first woman vice president in the United States. Uh, and she's a moment. Yes, she, it is a great moment. She's African-American and she's descended as a first generation uh, Indian in the United States, and both her parents were immigrants. So you know we get so much from this—the vast experience of Joe Biden, and the recent experience, and the symbolism of this great vice president. And then if you look at who's who he's appointing, he's appointing people of great talent who have the capacity to reach out across the entire electorate. So COVID, the economy. Number three is the the issues associated with inclusiveness, yes. social justice, equity. And the fourth one, and this is very important, because if, you, if you're looking around the world for an example of where it's a, a problem, is climate. This year, the United States has been hammered by the realities of climate. We used to have something called a fire season. We have a fire year now in the United States. Uh, we had the worst quality air uh, indexes in, in, in memory in many of our Western states. We have the longest hurricane season we've seen now ever. Uh, with hurricanes so many that we've passed through the Roman alphabet, and we're in the Greek alphabet now, and they're devastating the coastal areas of the United States. We have got to come to grips with this. So those four things are going to animate much of his early domestic policies and actions, and you'll see from that other actions that will occur over time. Understood, but what, what about his foreign policy? His domestic
0: agenda is quite ambitious, but what about his foreign policy? Is it yet would- another... Obama 3.0 third term? Or is there anything that will make Biden particularly original, that will make him stand out and maybe help United States maybe regain its global appeal?
1: Well, a couple of things. Uh, First, you you use the term ambitious for his domestic uh, policies. I would call them imperatives as opposed to ambitious. He has got to deal with those four things or he will fail as the president of the United States. Uh, Internationally, uh, we've got a lot of ground to recover. And I don't think the world should reasonably expect that out, out of this administration, we're gonna to return to a, an Obama-like uh, rewarmed international relationship. Uh, I think what you will see though, um, is a, a number of things. First, uh, and you'll probably hear it in his inaugural address, I would ask all of our friends around the world to listen to every word that Joe Biden speaks in his inaugural address. It will define him as the leader of the United States in many respects. So first I think you will hear that where Trump walked away from an American tradition of embracing human rights and trying to be this symbolic uh, leader of human rights in the world, I think uh, Joe Biden's gonna embrace that very quickly. Human rights is going to move back into the center of, of who we are as a people and who we, how we define our international relations. I think we will, you will see that uh, <clears throat> President Biden will embrace a return to multilateralism. Uh, the last administration was very bilateral and very punitive in its transactional foreign policy. If you didn't do what Trump wanted, you were going to pay for it. You were going to pay for it uh, uh, usually in economic sanctions, And that, to include how, how we treated the EU, how we treated the French, how we treated the Canadians, how we treated, frankly, too many of our friends so i think you'll see a return to multilateralism i think rather than a transactional foreign policy you'll see what we we will call a values based transformational foreign policy and this is the, how we this is how we have traditionally viewed ourselves and that the united states as a partner in being involved with our friends overseas as a partner not as a hegemon okay but as a partner our, our presence in an agreement, our presence in an alignment, our presence in an international organization enhanced the overall effectiveness of it. It was more than simply the sum of its parts. It was transformational because of our presence. So I think you're gonna see that. Multilateralism, embracing international organizations. I would see us coming back to the Paris Climate Accord very early, if not the first day of the, of the Biden administration. I think you'll immediately see us Uh, stop our movement away from the World Health Organization. That was a ridiculous move by President Trump, who needed to blame someone for his incompetence, his appalling failure in saving the United States from COVID. I think you'll see an endorsement of the United States for the United Nations. And then you'll see us being willing to to work more closely with partners on economic matters. Um, And then I, I think we'll be very clear on what we will expect of those who have slipped into illiberalism, uh, how we will deal with authoritarian states and certainly uh, totalitarian states.
0: When you mention illiberal, illiberalism, we have uh, member states such as Hungary, for example, in the European Union, who proudly call themselves as illiberal democracies. We also see Serbia it has significant democratic backsliding issues, which also has to do with illiberalism and issues with rule of law. So when you mention the maybe stronger position of human rights and rule of law of the United States, does it apply only to those countries such as China and Russia, or does it also apply to those countries in Europe?
1: Well, I think we, we're we going to be open to conversations with those countries. But I tell you, you're not going to see Viktor Orban in the Oval Office with President Biden telling him he's doing a great job, or comparing the success of uh, Viktor Orbán's to the success of Donald Trump. You're not going to see that. You just aren't. Uh, you're going to see the United States attempting to have conversations with those those, what have we traditionally considered constitutional democracies, having conversations with them about how they have slipped away from the, the inherent principles of the, those democracies. And those democracies with whom we can deal with, those democracies for whom human rights are at the core of their identity, we're going to find that we can operate very closely with them, very much in harmony with them. Those democracies that have trampled the human rights associated with the, their constitutions that have slipped away from them it will be more difficult, frankly, uh, to, to deal with the United States uh, as a partner uh, when, in fact, uh, the the leadership of a particular country has intentionally uh, slipped into illiberalism for the benefit of both uh, obtaining and cont- uh, obtaining and retaining uh, power at the expense of the human rights of the people in that country.
0: Understood, but I would like to touch upon maybe on China. You have a really large experience when it comes to China, as, I, as far as I know, as part of the George W. Bush administration, you were involved extensively with policy initiatives involving China and uh, Southeast China. And in that regard, I listened to a podcast recently in which you mentioned and I quote, if you treat someone as an enemy long enough, they will become your enemy. Is that maybe a criticism to the United States, who maybe increasingly calls uh, China as a rival, or even the EU, who has made, uh, recently also labeled China as a systemic rival? Would you think yes. that uh, your criticism maybe
1: uh, be directed even to them? No, my criticism was specifically against the Trump administration. Okay. You know, part of the uh, philosophy of those who seek to govern, govern illiberally is that they have to do so by exploiting what are known as others. And others can be other countries that give them the, the capacity to pursue a policy at the expense of that country, or others can be elements or segments of your population, like immigrants, or mm-hmm. like the black and brown population, or like the Chinese. Um, several things. First, uh, we can have a very constructive relationship with China, it's possible to have. But we have to <clears throat> enter that relationship embracing our values, our values associated with human rights. And in that regard, um, we are never gonna sign up to the Chinese uh, human rights agenda with respect to the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. Okay. Uh, and we should be outraged over what has happened in Hong Kong. And I think we will be. And we should be very clear about our support for Taiwan. Not for Taiwan independence, but for Taiwan's democracy, Taiwan's way of life. We've already uh, committed ourselves to a one China policy, but our policy is very clear with respect to Taiwan. While we don't support its independence, we will actively oppose any actions by either side to forcibly change the status quo. So I think the relationship with China is one, and we talk about four C's at Brookings, four C's. The first is look for ways to cooperate. There are a lot of problems in this world we're going to face in the 21st century. And we're not gonna solve those problems that the United States and China can't cooperate. More broadly, I would say that the community of democracies and China can't cooperate. That's in medicine, it's in pandemic control, it's in artificial intelligence, it's in climate. A lot of areas where we can find ways to cooperate and be effective. And then we talk about recognizing that we'll have to compete against the Chinese. And the smart leader will look for opportunity and competition but try to manage the competition so it doesn't become the third C. And the third C is confrontation. And that's where the Trump administration has taken us into a consistently confrontational relationship with the Chinese. Now, I don't know a lot about a lot of things, but I know a lot about going to war. And when you're in a persistent policy of confrontation with a thermonuclear power, the road from confrontation to conflict, the fourth C is short, and it's dangerously slippery and so but it's okay to call it, the chinese comp- competitors strategic is it competitors. possible is it possible for biden
0: administration to be constructive partner to have constructive relationship with china while at the same time having a stronger position on human rights we all know sure that is. china
1: sure it is look and, and we need to hold the chinese accountable for their predatory trade uh, actions Uh, And the economic principles that we don't agree with because we line up with the EU very strongly on those matters. And when the EU calls China a strategic rival, it doesn't mean China is a strategic enemy. It means they're a rival. And the way you deal with a rival is to outcompete the rival. First of all, the one thing we have in common with the EU, uh, completely apart from the Trump administration, but America has in common with the EU, is a common set of values with respect to human rights and the rights of women and the rights. Uh, of, uh, of workers and minorities, the, the second thing we share is, is a highly advanced, uh, set of uh, democratic principles and highly advanced technologies. Here's an opportunity for us to compete with China in a manner that, uh, makes the, the way we do it in the manner that makes, uh, our consortium with the democracies more attractive in the world than the Chinese. The Chinese have an alternative model. It's called democracy the authoritarian capitalism, and for many countries in the world, it's easier to embrace Chinese authoritarian capitalism because there's no price for doing that in con- in the context of uh, human rights in those countries or uh, uh, relationships with the uh, with the West. We've got to outcompete the Chinese on those valuable, important issues on human rights, on technology, on re- supporting our democracies. And in fact, helping those countries that have become illiberal or those countries that are struggling to establish a credible set of a a credible system of governance to help them to find their way into democracy. And I'm not talking about the U.S. exporting democracy. I'm talking about the U.S. helping countries that are struggling to find their way. And many of them in the developing world are helping them to find their way through constructive engagement with the EU and the United States or the community of democracies writ large.
0: But in that regard, how does Serbia, for example, fit into that picture? We see it struggling with its democratic levels, but uh, on the other hand, it has ever closer relationship. It has developed a a very close relationship with China. Recently, uh, Serbia has even endorsed China's position in the United Nations Human Rights Council on the situation in Xinjiang, on Uyghurs, by saying that China has done nothing wrong and the situation in this region is uh, fully normalized. Serbia has also endorsed the proactively China in Hong Kong, for example. So it, And finally, it has never supported any EU declaration which targeted China. So do you see Serbia changing this position in the near future, and how can it be done? How can we nudge Serbia to maybe stick to those principles that, the, for example, EU and the uh, United States abide to?
1: Well, Serbians are going to have to deal with that. I, I I would not be so presumptuous as to dictate how Serbians ought to deal with that. But I will simply tell you that the United States will take note of the positions that Serbia has taken with respect to Chinese massive violation of the human rights of the Uyghurs. There are a million Uyghurs in concentration camps. You can't use any other term. They're trying to re-engineer the, the mentality of a million Uyghurs. Why? Because they look different and because they worship a different, country, a, a different faith. And so the United States is not going to tell uh, Serbia, what it does and shouldn't do. We're not going to try to dictate policy to the to Serbia, okay. but we will take note of the positions that the uh, that Serbia takes, that Belgrade takes, and compare those positions with respect to China or those positions with respect to basic human principles. We'll compare those to our own, and if we find that there's a difference, I think that will, in many respects, define the relationship the United States will have with Serbia.
0: But hasn't Trump administration also taken note of maybe Serbia's positioning
1: towards China? I'm sure, sure that even
0: Trump didn't like the fact that Serbia and China are increasing cooperation.
1: Well, that's a, that's a problem you're going to have to find. You're going to have to deal with. You know, one of the issues that we have, and I think that we have, we have uh, uh, embraced in the last administration was we tried to have too many of our partners make fundamental decisions one way or the other about it's either China or it's the United States. Uh, when we are at our best, we don't force countries to take those positions. What we try to do is incentivize the relationship incentivize, with sure. that country in a way that, that clearly creates a logic within that relationship to find an affinity with American principles, or more broadly, principles that are committed to human rights. Now, Serbia is an independent country with a great population and, and a, a wonderful tradition. Uh, of uh, centuries and centuries Serbia as a population as a country as an idea is much much older than the United States so we would be very very careful about attempting to dictate policy to the Serbian people or the Serbian government but we are going to take note of how Serbia's policies interrelate with the EU which we're going to become very close allies with uh, and how it relates to china and and we may be able to find that there are constructive ways that we can cooperate with Serbia on matters of China
0: but which described that maybe Serbo-American relationship is becoming more constructive as time passes. We've seen that president of Serbia has met the president of the United States in White House. They signed an agreement, not only that uh, is supposed to aid the economic normalization between Belgrade and Pristina, but also to build closer ties with the United States and to maybe uh, a nudge away Serbia from, to discourage Serbia from building closer technological ties with China. There is a clause that says that Serbia will not agree to work with any untrusted vendors when it comes to 5G. Sure, so, do, sure. do you think this is a maybe a good, good way forward for
1: the U.S. to continue? I do. Uh, you know, often we can have uh, strong and very constructive economic relationships with countries where our democracies don't necessarily line up and find that and create that for a deeper relationship in other areas as well. Um, first, I was very glad to see the agreement. Uh, I think we call it the 2020 Washington Agreement. I was very glad to see that. Um, And I think uh, what you will see in the Biden administration is that all of those agreements will be looked at very carefully. And if it makes sense to continue to support those agreements, and I suspect that, that it will make good sense to support, that we'll see the Biden administration continue on the trajectory of supporting uh, not just an economic normalization between uh, Pristina and Belgrade, uh, but uh, have that uh, convert over time into uh, something that's useful on a political level, political normalization. Um, that's that's in the end what we should all seek. Uh, but there will be difficulties associated with it. The history uh, between Kosovo and uh, Serbia is is fraught. It has been for many many years. And I think the United States and the EU have a unique uh, role, but the United States in particular and the Biden administration, I think, will be uniquely qualified in this regard to try to create uh, a way forward between Washington and Belgrade and Pristina that can be uh, constructive at a political level as well as an economic level for both countries
0: but as belgrade hasn't hasn't been hiding its sympathies towards trump for example mm-hmm. and uh, considering that biden doesn't have such a great reputation here in serbia as many people remain, remember the 90s do you sure. think that biden and his administration will somehow manage to maybe advance what trump has already done in the past months and years
1: well a couple things i would uh, again i would not be so presumptuous as to tell serbians to do anything but i would give strong advice to serbian leadership Stop using the term Serb hater uh, when they talk about Joe Biden. You know, you, you used a, the term a few minutes ago if you call somebody an enemy long enough, they become an enemy. Yeah. <laughs> call Joe Biden Serb hater long enough, guess what might happen? And we don't want that to happen. And of course, it's never been true uh, as we see the Biden uh, foreign policy unfold, uh, which will which will re-emphasize a deepening of multilateral and bilateral relationships on a transformational level. This is an op- a real opportunity for the leadership in Belgrade to reach out to Washington, uh, to create the kind of relationship that you want going forward. But if if rhetoric in the political leadership in uh, Belgrade emp- continues to emphasize that Joe Biden is a Serb hater, eh, it's just not gonna be helpful. It's just, it just isn't helpful. Let's try to give this a clean start Uh, because certainly Serbia needs it, and certainly I think the United States would want it. So I'll stop there.
0: That's a great great insight, and I think Belgrade should listen to this recommendation. I hope they do. I hope they do, very carefully. And uh, we need to wrap up this uh, conversation as much as it is very, very interesting. We are running out of time. Just a small, really short question for you. Uh, Biden mentioned uh, in his program, and it's available on his website, that he would like to organize and host a global summit on democracy, and uh, within the summit he would invite democracies in those countries to, that aspire to consolidate their democracies. He would invite them to work together and find common solutions you know, within this framework. He would also invite civil society organizations. Can you tell us a little bit more about the summit? Is there anything we can expect from it? And maybe can civil Serbian civil society of Serbia maybe expect to play a role in this?
1: well i'm talking to somebody right now you uh, who represents i think a very important uh, extremely important uh, representation and demonstration of uh, the effectiveness of civil society and uh, again i'm very careful about giving advice to foreign leadership but i would simply say that uh, that president biden is going to move pretty quickly on this matter of, of a summit of democracies and it may in fact become a term of use uh, and look, we have to we have to come together as democracies going forward. You know, the ravages of of this pandemic may only be the first of many that we'll see in the 21st century. The challenges of a bifurcated technology, a Chinese technology versus a technology for the rest of the world, that's going to make things difficult in the 21st century. Climate is going to be god awful, and if if Europe didn't like the two million people that came out of Syria, which are uh, Uh, conflict refugees. We expect that by 2070, 150 million people will become climate refugees. If we don't get together on this as a community of democracies, we're going to have some very serious challenges. So again, my advice uh, would be that Belgrade should put its hand in the air very quickly and very soon uh, expressing a desire to be part of the summit of democracies. And Uh, Whether the government in Belgrade invites civil society to come, or friends uh, between think tanks can make the case that certain think tanks ought to be invited, that can happen. Uh, But I think the the summit of democracies is going to be a very important early demonstration of American desire to try to lead in the 21st century again in a constructive, values-based, transformational means.
0: Thank you very much. And we hope that we will be able to speak more to you about this topic in the following period. And I really appreciate that you found your time and your busy schedule to talk to us.
1: Thank you for what you're doing as well. You are certainly a light uh, in your part of the world. So thank you very much. Thank you. It's an honor. Thank you. Good day to you. Bye-bye.
0: I also thank our listeners. Until next time. Goodbye.